The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 27. A Gentleman of Nerve. After the Keystone Cop incident, Ed brooded. He didn't care to socialise with us after the show anymore, but at least he behaved himself on stage, did what we needed him to do, and no more. Wren, too, took to heading back to our lodgings rather than spending any more time than she had to, in the company of me and Stan. This was not like her. She was usually game for a laugh. And one evening I pressed her to come to the saloon with us, but she simply turned and walked away. I grabbed her arm, not hard, just to keep her attention, and she flinched in pain as though I had hurt her, although she insisted it was nothing. It seemed that a line had been drawn, and it was hard to escape the feeling that where there had once been four comiques, now there was two plus two. More accurately, by then we were the Keystone two plus two, of course, and the Bostocks managed to book us in for a good stint on the Proctor time. The Proctor theatres were based in and around New York and New Jersey, and offered continuous vaudeville performances from noon until midnight. For the price of admission, a patron could stay all day, and New Yorkers were well familiar with their slogan, After breakfast, go to Proctor's. After Proctor's, go to bed. We were able to take semi-permanent residence in an apartment on 47th Street, which was happily handy for a bar we had frequented in the Carno days. We had two bedrooms, the Hurleys had one, and Stan and I shared the other, and a communal kitchen, dining room and bathroom, and we almost felt like we were proper Americans. There was a saying in vaudeville that you could work for a year in New York without ever packing a bag, and certainly most of the venues we played that spring were within easy reach of our new home, and the rent was cheap, and we were not having to buy expensive cross-country train tickets, so I was able to start putting a bit of money aside. As for the act itself, audiences loved it. Stan was getting very good reviews for his turn as Charlie, living up to his billing as the nation's premier chaplain impersonator. We would occasionally cross paths with rivals in the field, including one who would change his name by deed pole to Charles Applin, for example, but none of them could hold a candle to Stan. However, the coolness between me and Stan on the one hand and the Hurleys on the other was not the only concern that spring. I began to wonder if I was losing my marbles. You see, I found myself on stage every afternoon and evening playing opposite Charlie, and I was having a hard time of it. I knew it was really Stan, of course, and I knew he was putting it on, but several times during the act I felt a surge of hostility towards him that I could barely keep under control. Stan himself didn't help matters. When Charlie had first gone to play in the flickers, Stan and I hardly paid any attention to him. He was out of our lives. He was doing his thing, and we were doing ours. Now, though, Stan was eagerly rifling through any newspaper he could get his hands on, looking for fresh titbits about Charlie. Chaplin's S&A films were coming out by this time, and if anything, they were even more popular and acclaimed than the Keystone offerings, even though to me they seemed just as flimsy and unremarkable. His new job was the first, which turned out to be the movie that Ren and I had sabotaged in Chicago. Then Charlie had moved to Niles, outside San Francisco, and had made The Champion, a frenetic boxing film, and In the Park, another quick nonsense. Stan insisted that we all attend, even though Charlie was no longer working with Chester Conklin or Mabel Normand, or for that matter, with any generic Keystone cops. And when the audiences roared, he would turn to us with a big beam on his thin face. This is all good for us, you know, he'd say. I knew that he was probably right, and that the Keystone Four could only profit from Chaplin's inexorable rise, but I sometimes thought I'd have been happier to hear that our careers were utterly ruined, if only it meant his calamitous downfall as well. But no, Chaplin was on the up, 
and little bits of paraphernalia started appearing everywhere. It got so you could hardly go into a drugstore or a tobacconist's without being confronted by dozens of little statues of Charlie, his simpering smile, his bright white teeth, his head archly cocked to one side. And every time Stan saw one of these atrocities, he would buy one and perch it on the mantelpiece at the apartment, until I could barely bring myself to venture into the main room, because it had virtually turned into a shrine to the little fella. I couldn't bring myself to say this to Stan, but I wasn't sure how much longer I could stomach it. My thoughts turned constantly to Tilly, to how things were not so very long ago, and to how we could possibly be reunited. I'd had a letter from her via the Bostocks, in which she admitted that she'd had to spend the return ticket money, and so could no longer afford to return to America, and she wouldn't be happy to risk a crossing with young Wallace in any case. Wallace, too, was on my mind a lot. Eight months was a huge chunk in the life of such a small child. I found myself wondering if he would even remember me. I looked at other children in the parks and on the streets, trying to work out which ones were the age the little lad must be now. Would he be walking by himself, confidently stepping out like that child in the rather nasty blue sailor suit, smugly licking on his red lollipop? With a bleak laugh, I thought that if I didn't manage to get over there and find them, and this blasted war dragged on and on, he might be in an actual naval uniform before I saw him again. It was clearly going to be up to me, then, to do something. But passenger crossings at that time were very few and far between, and tickets were like hen's teeth. Then, in March, there was a story that the American newspapers quickly began to call the Thrasher Incident. The British steamboat RMS Falaba was torpedoed and sunk by the German U-boat U-28, and 104 people were killed. The reason the American press became so agitated was that one of these unfortunates was an American passenger, a mining engineer from Massachusetts, called Leon Thrasher. Great vaudeville name, I thought, but that's by the by. Now, at first, this seemed to put the old kibosh on my plans to travel to England and search for Tilly, but in fact, the Thrasher incident made crossing suddenly seem more viable. For one thing, the British Navy began a blockade of German ports, so maybe the U-boats wouldn't be able to get out to sea any more. And for another, if the Americans made so much fuss over the death of a single citizen, who would risk sinking a ship with so many more of them on board? The Germans wanted to keep the Americans out of the war at any price, so surely the U-boats would leave passenger liners alone from now on. That's what Cunard reckoned, anyway. Their fleet was repainted in its old black, white and red livery, having skulked across the seas a few times in a sort of plain, dull grey, in the hope of not being seen, and there were tickets for Atlantic crossings on sale. Towards the end of April, I'd made up my mind. First thing one morning, I took Stan out for breakfast, partly to get away from his damn shrine to Chaplin, and outlined my plan. There is a large liner crossing from Liverpool now, as we speak, and I have just enough money to buy myself a berth in steerage for its return voyage. I see, Stan said seriously. Well, that'd take a bit of nerve, and no mistake. To get back to the States, I said, with Tilly and the boy, I'm going to need more. Stan reached across and put his hand on my shoulder. I gave Charlie money once to send Tilly away from you, he said. It seems only right that I should give you the money to bring her back. I do have some cash saved up. It will clean me out, mind, but nothing would make me happier than to see you three together again. I embraced him then, for he was the best friend a man ever had. That same day, I headed down to the shipping office to buy myself a ticket. While I was waiting for a portly gentleman in front of me to make his plentiful arrangements, I looked over a page from the newspaper that had been pinned to the wall of the waiting room, 
It featured an advertisement for Cunard's crossings to Europe via Liverpool. Beneath this was a block of text in a box under the urgent headline, Notice. It went on, Travellers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or of any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters and that travellers sailing in the war zone do so at their own risk. This statement was released by the Imperial German Embassy in Washington, D.C., once it was my turn, I said to the desk clerk, "'What do you make of that?' "'It's just bluster,' he said. "'We've pinned it up because it's in all the newspapers "'and we want the public to know that we're unconcerned.' "'Bluster, you say?' "'Yeah, they just want to try and put people off, see? "'Hit Cunard in the pocket, "'because they wouldn't really dare to attack one of our ships. "'Has anyone been put off, do you think? "'Not that I know of, but then if they have been, "'then I wouldn't see him now, would I? "'I suppose not. "'Now, I have people waiting, sir. "'Do you want a ticket or don't you?' I took a deep breath. Yes, I said. One single passage. Steerage, please. The company meeting we held at the Proctor's 125th Street Theatre later to break the news to the Hurleys was a bit of a bumpy ride. I explained what I had in mind, and Ed was indignant, not to say livid. Well, how long will you be gone? He puffed. I can't say. As long as it takes. And what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Sit on our hands? It will just mean a few weeks, a month at the most, probably, Stan said. We shall manage. Pardon me, but isn't that exactly what Tilly said when she left in the first place? And yet here we are, eight months or more later, and still no sign of her. Thanks, Ed, I said. You're really cheering me up, as usual. I'm going, and there's an end of it. I think it's romantic, Wren said, not catching my eye. Tilly's a lucky girl. Well... Ed pronounced. I think we're well within our rights to look for a replacement. Shouldn't be too hard. Charming. Not to fill your boots, Arthur. I shall do that, naturally. I mean a replacement to play the cop, of course. I thought it would be easier just to take a short break, Stan began. Nonsense. In fact, I bumped into an old Carno colleague just yesterday who would fit the bill splendidly. Ted Banks. Ted Banks? Stan and I looked at one another. Yes. Do you know him? I know the name, I said. When Stan and I left Carno in 12, he and Charles Carden took our places, so we didn't actually get to work with either of them. But he's replaced you before, and he has worked with Chaplin. See? He'll be perfect. We're not talking about replacing Arthur, though, are we? Stan said, looking slightly alarmed. We'll only need Ted to stand in for a few engagements. Whatever it turns out to be, Ed said, with a not altogether pleasant smile. My departure was set for 10am on the following Saturday. Irritatingly, we were not due to be in New York City for that last week. We were playing out in Albany, which was a three-hour train ride away. The Keystone Four, or Five as we now were, since Ted Banks was coming along to learn the ropes, boarded the train on the Sunday morning. Stan and I were still a little bleary-eyed from the night before, but Ed, Wren and Ted, sitting across the centre aisle from us, were full of the joys, chattering away cheerfully. Ted Banks was a tall, lugubrious fellow, of a sort you often found in vaudeville, funnily enough. He looked like he would never make you laugh in conversation in a month of Sundays, but on stage he would do a perfectly good job for you. It turned out he and the Hurleys had toured together quite extensively in England, and the three of them were clearly pretty thick. "'You won't leave me alone with those three for too long, will you?' Stan muttered. "'It'll be fine,' I said. "'You've shown them who's in charge.' "'Yeah,' Stan said, shooting them a sidelong glance. "'Who knows how long that'll last?' 
I did feel bad abandoning Stan to his fate, pursuing my own selfish ends, but the pull of retrieving Tilly and Wallace from a nation at war was too strong to ignore. It was simply something I had to do. Listen, I said, keeping my voice low. Maybe this will work out for the best, you know? If Ted works out, then when I bring Tilly and the lad back, we can keep him and dump the Hurleys, can't we? Stan brightened. You're right at that, he said, slapping his hand on the arm of the seat. So, you will play until Friday, and then get the railway train down to the quays early Saturday morning, whereupon Ed will play your part, and Ted will play Ed's. That's the plan. Well, all right. I hope you have a good trip. What ship is it, by the way? Is it one we know? It is, actually, I said. It's the Lusitania. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Chapter 28. The Knockout That week at the Proctor's Theatre in Albany seemed to take an age. I was on edge, not sleeping well, filled with excitement at the thought of heading back to England to look for Tilly and my son. I hadn't seen them since the previous August, and I'd been missing them terribly. I'd sent a wire to Tilly which simply said, Arriving 7th on Lusitania. Cables were very expensive then, but the post office clerk assured me that there was no chance at all of a letter arriving ahead of me. I reckoned she'd be able to work out for herself how long it would take me to get to Great Yarmouth, and only hoped her anticipation of our reunion would match mine. By the Friday night of our run in Albany, I was ready to go. I was packed well in advance, and had bought a ticket for the six o'clock train in the morning. On stage for what would be my last performance of the Nutty Burglars, for a short while at least, I was distracted by thoughts of leaving and thoughts of Tilly. At one point, I drifted off almost completely into a reverie, most unprofessional, and when I snapped back to the moment... There were Charlie Chaplin and Mabel Normand looking daggers at me. "'What the?' I said before I was quite myself. "'Charlie? How the—' "'Pull yourself together,' Charlie hissed, then louder. "'There's a cop outside!' It was Stan, of course, and I shook my head and snapped to it, turned and saw the cop, who was utterly unfamiliar. Where Ed Hurley was stocky, this chap was tall and thin with a beetling handlebar moustache. Ed's uniform didn't fit him so well, but he seemed to know what he was supposed to do, and after a few moments' confusion, I saw past the facial hair and recognised Ted Banks. Of course, he and Ed would have arranged the switch as a surprise, their idea of a gag. It was most unlike me to be thrown so badly on stage. Maybe I was leaving at the right time. 
Sorry, Stan, I said over a beer later. I was off my game tonight. Don't worry about it, Stan grinned. Maybe a break will do you good, eh? We clinked our glasses together. Having said that, Stan went on, if you could see your way to making that break as short as possible, I should be most grateful. I'll do my best, I assured him, then emptied my glass. Now, that'll do for tonight. I need to be up and away at the crack of dawn, so I'll say good night. We shook hands. Give Tilly my love, won't you? Stan said. You can do that yourself when we return, I said. And Stan? Thanks again. He grinned, a big Stan grin, and patted my arm. With a small lump in my throat, I turned and headed outside. Once out in the open air, I felt the call of nature, and realised that I wasn't going to make it back to our hotel in any comfort until I'd dealt with the matter, so I strolled around the exterior of the establishment to the appropriate facility, which was an outhouse across the backyard. Once I'd made my contribution to the reeking trough, I turned, and there in the doorway, silhouetted in the moonlight, was Edgar Hurley. Leaving without saying goodbye, he sneered. Oh, you know, I said breezily. Early start, all that. I took a step towards him, expecting him to step aside and let me pass, but he didn't do so. I stopped, wondering, through a slightly beery haze, whether I was going to have to shove my way past him. The thing is, though, Ed went on, in the same sneering tone. I have a leaving present for you. A leaving present? Suddenly I was transported back to Kansas City a year and a half before. Charlie was leaving the Carno company to go and make flickers with Max Sennett, and I'd found him sitting alone on the stage at the end of his last night with us, contemplating his life. In my pocket, its unpleasant contents bumping gently against one another, there'd been a tobacco tin with a ribbon tied round it, my leaving present for him. What was inside the tin? Well, the clue came in the attached card, which was inscribed thusly, Some shits for a shit. In the event, I didn't give it to him. He was suddenly, unexpectedly nice to me, and I couldn't go through with it. I wondered whether Ed Hurley had concocted something similar for me. At least we were standing in the proper location for such an exchange. Yeah, Ed said. Well, what is it? I said. I should have known better. Suddenly there was a flash of lights like a firework display, and before I knew what was happening, I was on the floor, face down in the disgusting pools of urine left by drunkards who couldn't hit a barn door, let alone a respectably ample trough. My brain tried to focus on what had just happened. Ed had hit me. That was it. He'd reached for his jacket pocket as though to take out a gift for me, and I, like a gullible fool, had looked down, thus positioning my chin perfectly to receive the sucker punch. "'What?' I said, spitting something nasty out of my mouth, which was beginning to hurt. "'What was that for?' "'Do you think I'm a fool?' Hurley snarled. "'Yes, but that's no reason to hit a chap,' I said, getting slowly to my feet and trying to dust myself off. Smash! Hurley drove his fist into my face again, and I sat down hard, this time right in the blasted urinal trough. I felt warm liquid trickling down my lip, but was more horrified by the slightly cooler liquid seeping into the seat of my trousers.' "'I shall be glad to see the back of you, Dando,' Hurley growled. "'You've been holding me back long enough, you and Jefferson.' "'Holding you back? Is that what this is about, you maniac?' I said, dabbing at my nose. "'I went to see Chaplin, you know.' "'You went—' "'What?' "'I went to see Chaplin at the S&A Studios when we were in Chicago.' Even though I'd had a couple of beers and had taken a couple of hard shots to the head, I suddenly saw where this was going. "'I confronted him,' Hurley said and I could just imagine him doing so. I demanded to know how he had the temerity to sack my wife from his tin-pot little film, and do you know what he told me? 
I thought perhaps I did, but said nothing. He told me just exactly why he had fired the pair of you, and just precisely how you'd contrived to ruin a whole afternoon's work with your shenanigans. I decided to try a conciliatory approach. Now look here, Ed, I said, trying to scramble up from the trough. Hurley shoved me in the chest so that I sat down again with a splash. No, you look here, he said, and aimed a big haymaker at the side of my head. Well, I could see he was pretty worked up, and he did have a point about my messing around with his wife. But as his huge and obvious punch came towards me, I suddenly realised something, and I slipped it. His fist whipped across my face, missing by a whisker, and clanged into a downpipe, part of the local plumbing. Yeah! Hurley roared, clutching his hand, and I clambered out of my revolting perch just as a little water tank crashed down to the floor, its supports eroded by rust and who knows what other corrosive influences. Wait a moment, I said. Do you mean to tell me that you've known since Chicago that you've kept it bottled up inside for three whole months and you've only summoned up the courage to confront me when you know that I'm leaving in the morning? Ah! Hurley panted, grimacing at his hand, which could well have been broken. But you haven't kept it bottled up all that time, have you, you coward? I said then. Now I see why Wren has been so distant. I thought she was embarrassed, as I was, by the way, but no, I see it now. You've hit her, haven't you? You've punished her, and you've been damned careful about it. You haven't given her a black eye, because we'd have seen. You've been hitting her where it won't show. With a roar, Hurley threw himself at me, shoving me back against the wall, driving his head into my face. You're out, you bastard, he shouted, and now Ted is in, and the three of us will manage Stan easily. I just wanted you to know that before you left, so you know there's nothing to come back for. Well, that gave me pause, I must say. It was as clear as could be that when I left I would be leaving old Stan in a heap of trouble. But I simply had to go, didn't I? I had to take this chance of seeing Tilly again. I was a match for him, and he knew it, hence cold-cocking me at the start, of course. But now I was on my feet. I began to pay him back for the punishment he'd meted out to Wren. No wonder she was quiet, I thought, as I pummeled her husband. No wonder she stopped coming out for a drink after the shows and became so distant. Hurley tried desperately to smother me in a bear hug with a view to wrestling me to the ground, but I swayed out of his path and landed a good punch on his right eye. "'That'll take a tidy bit of make-up to cover it when it blackens up,' I said, and the idea pleased me, so when Hurley came at me again I gave him a matching shiner on the other eye so that he'd be sure to look like a kind of grumpy panda for the next week or so. He was properly angry, and he landed another couple of decent hits. I felt the teeth rattling in my jaw, but I went at him once more, and I finally put his lights out with a big smash right to the beak. He sat slumped in the trough where he'd first dumped me, although most of its contents were already soaked into my suit, and I stood over him panting. A trickle of blood oozed slowly out of his battered ear, and suddenly I thought in a panic that the swine wasn't breathing. Christ, what if I'd killed him? I leaned in close to check for vital signs, and he suddenly spluttered a great mist of blood and spit right in my face, and then toppled over sideways into the urine where he lay rasping, but decidedly alive. I struggled out of there and made my way somehow back to my bed, where I passed out. The next thing I knew, the sunlight was streaming through the curtains of the single attic room where I was lodging on an old army cot bed that week. Stan was shaking me vigorously by the arm as the room swam slowly into focus. "'Arthur! Arthur! Wake up! What happened? And what in the name of God is that smell?' "'Huh?' I said. 
You look terrible. What happened, Arthur? Hurley, I mumbled. My mouth was pretty bashed up, and I began testing my teeth with my tongue. Oh, my. I mean, look here. Shouldn't you be on your way by now? What time is it? It's very nearly seven. When are you supposed to be on the six o'clock? My scrambled wits finally managed to register that there was a crisis. Shit, I said. Gotta go. I clambered off the bed, ignoring the shrieks of complaint from various parts of my aching frame. My hand hurt like the very devil. But you've missed the train. Get next one, I mumbled, grabbing the bag that I'd mercifully packed the afternoon before. Those big boats are never on time, are they? True, but at least get changed first, man. That suit stinks something rotten. No time. I galloped down the stairs and out onto the street. There were no cabs in sight in either direction, so I pelted as fast as my battered skeleton would take me all the way to the railway station, where, as fortune would have it, there was a New York train steaming on the platform. I fumbled my ticket over to the ticket clerk, ignoring his screwed-up nose and disapproving expression, and he transferred me to this later train with almost indecent haste. I leapt aboard and collapsed into a seat, panting from the exertions of the morning, and bruised and battered from those of the night before. It took me a couple of stops before I was able to collect myself sufficiently to appraise my surroundings, and I noticed then that all the seats near to me had emptied, as other passengers had moved away. I dragged my bag along to the little bathroom cubicle and awkwardly changed my clothes. It seemed the least I could do. The face in the mirror looked bashed up, but I consoled myself with the thought that Ed Hurley's black eyes would be coming through back in Albany. When I returned to my seat, I found that a tall gentleman with wire-rimmed spectacles had taken the seat opposite. I nodded to him courteously, and he smiled in return, and we travelled in companionable silence for a little while. I was doing the mental arithmetic in my head, trying to calculate my chances of making the Lusitania. "'Excuse me,' I said. "'Do you happen to know when we arrive in New York?' The tall gentleman took out his pocket watch and examined it, as though the answer was to be found there. Ten minutes before midday, I believe,' he said. "'Thank you,' I replied. "'That would only give me a bare half-hour to get to the Keys.' I won't bore you with my harem scarum chase from the railway station to the port of New York's Pier 54, with the achingly slow cab driver, with the collision between two delivery trucks which meant us taking a detour of a couple of blocks, costing us precious minutes, or with a sweaty desperation as I leant out of the window for the last few hundred yards, shouting at hapless pedestrians to clear out of our way. Let me just say that finally we rounded a corner and rattled between two giant warehouses until we burst into the sunlight onto the quay itself, and there was the mighty looming Lusitania, gleaming in its old magnificent livery, streamers hanging from every porthole and railing, passengers gleefully waving their hats and handkerchiefs at friends and relatives below. I pushed desperately through these clumps of smiling people as a little band played a jaunty farewell song, and then I stopped for I could see that the great liner was twenty feet from the dockside, then twenty-five, and all the gangways had been hauled aboard, and the ropes were disappearing into their guide-holes like rats' tails under a cooker. I'd missed her. Chapter 29. The Room. Summer of 1917. Somewhere in America. As you can imagine, I said, I was raging. "'With Edgar Hurley, you mean?' John said. "'Well, yes, with him, the idiot, and also, by the way, with the clerk at the booking office, who explained with infuriating patience that there was a company policy against granting a refund once the ship had sailed, and that it was my responsibility and mine alone to make sure that I was on it. 
John began to look at his fingernails, and I felt the need to bring the conversation round to his main area of interest as soon as possible. Mostly, though, I raged at our old friend Charles Spencer Chaplin, for it was he, was it not, who had told the pompous cuckold Hurley information that he could easily have withheld. About you making merry with Hurley's wife. Exactly. He could have kept that to himself. That would have been the sporting thing to do, the friendly thing. But no, he saw the chance to spite me, do you see? To cause trouble, to stab me in the back. And he took it, knowingly and gladly. I was sure of that. So because of him, you were denied the chance to cross the Atlantic towards your sweetheart and your son. And I was not happy about it. Until later. Well, yes. Some might say, Chaplin, and Hurley for that matter, did you a good turn there? Accidentally, yes, but that was not his intention, that's my point. I think, Dando, that if I'm to stick my neck out for you, I'm going to need a bit more than that. Oh, there's more, I said. There's plenty more. 